Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Hello and welcome to the China Sports Insider Podcast on the Seneca Network. I am Haig Balian, and in the studio is the China Sports Insider, Mark Dreyer. Today, the International Ice Hockey Federation finally makes a decision. China's team will play at the Beijing Winter Olympics. The U.S. announces a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Games. And the Chinese Super League is back. We take a deep dive into all the issues with Chinese soccer with the New York Times' Tarek Panja and Nikki Wong, who used to be an advisor to the Chinese Soccer League back when she worked at Deloitte. How are you doing, Mark? I am very well. Lots been going on, as usual. Yeah, this hockey story. I mean, we've got, I guess, some clarity. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. finally. So we said last week, you know, um, we we thought that we thought that China was going to be in, and they are in. So now it is official. There's no more back and forth. China, there will be a Chinese team, men's team, in the Olympics now. What this means for people who haven't been following this, the story that, um, as, as closely as we have is that they are playing the US, Canada and Germany, who is a very good team, um, at the Olympics come February next year. And uh, quite frankly, the scorelines are not going to be good. And people have different reactions to this. Um, you know, there's, there's people kind of taking the geopolitical, you know, people who, who, who want to see, you know, huge store, uh, scores. It, it's worth pointing out that that's, uh, in North American sports, and as a Brit, this is kind of this is a slightly strange topic for us. You know, the the thing where you don't run up the score, right? You right, know? that cultural thing where yeah, you do yeah, it, yeah. It's like no, you just score as many because goal difference is always is always a factor in like soccer and league tables. So you score as many as you can, and you know if the other team is is no good, well then too bad. Whereas in North America, there is this thing. So this is now getting quite a lot of um, quite a lot of coverage in 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 the media. I've noticed. And people talking about running up the score, but gold differential could be a factor in the Olympics. I think it does. And yeah. I think this is, I mean, we're sort of... I mean, yeah, it, it, it is a factor, but it's a question of does it come into play in the particular games as the way, as the tournament plays out? Don't you have to assume that it will, though? So so what people, basically, we're talking about scores of, you know, they'll quickly get to 15 or more. And then, and then there is this sort of narrative that, well, then the NHL guys will take their foot off the gas. But it's not clear that they will. Um, you know, they are, they're competitive sports people and, you know, they're, they're in it to win it. So, so, so you talked to to a player immediately after you heard the announcement. Uh, what, what was his reaction? Shit. (laughs) So, so look, I, I will, uh, let me, let me provide a little bit of context, uh, to this. Um, and there's lots of different groups in the, the, the Chinese team. And then within that, of course, you've got your individual opinions. So when I say different groups, there are, of course, there's the, the base of the, the Chinese team, so local Chinese players. And then you have um, the heritage players, so the North American players of, of, of Chinese descent. And we still don't know, this is the other thing that we are waiting for, we still don't know how many of those people have their paperwork in order. And we'll get into this in a second. Yeah. From what I'm hearing, some of the younger kids are like, well, they just want to play at the Olympics at all costs. And so it doesn't matter that, you know, you get to play on the same ice as, as Conor McDavid and Sidney Crosby. So even if you get hammered, well, hey, it was still a great experience. Others, 
more typically, the, I think the older the older players in the camp are thinking like, this is going to be an embarrassment. And mm. quite frankly, I feel bad for these players. Yeah, They've been put in this situation. It, it, it's it's not their fault. They're going to try the best they can. Like I've seen some of the, the games they've been playing in, in, in Russia. They're decent players, right? They're just not NHL all-star level. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Let's be clear. The players do not deserve any of this. And I'm going to be cheering for them even when they play against Canada. The the two main targets of of, of blame are, have to be the the IIHF and and you know the Chinese hockey authorities uh, who together basically decided that this was going to be a good idea and that we'd be in a better place by 2022. Frankly, both sides should have known better, and a lot could have been done in the intervening years instead of you know when we hit panic stations in May. So the players are kind of you know, and I think that goes back to the comment uh, when I when I messaged one of the players, you know, like. Of course they want to play in the Olympics, but they're not idiots. They know what a tough task they're facing. So I think that that's kind of where those somewhat mixed feelings come in. It, it actually, it was, it was interesting because last week the Kunlun Red Star made a roster change, right? So they uh, they played fewer of the heritage players and they played more of the uh, Chinese yeah, uh, so Yeah, so, so there's two reasons for that. Now, number one is some of the paperwork uh, is not in order for some of these heritage players. It's not clear that all of them want to sign. From what I'm hearing, there's about half a dozen players who are basically thinking, you know what, enough's enough. I'm not, I'm not going to go through with this. Uh, it's a passport issue. A lot of them are, you know, there's probably concerns about about the scorelines at the Olympics, but more than that, it's about can I get my Canadian or American passport back at some unspecified point point in the future. So some people are not prepared to kind of gamble, if you will, on that. So some of the kids who just want to play at the Olympics at all costs are like, hey, it's fine. We'll we'll see we'll see how what happens. But as a result, the the team has been playing more of these Chinese kids to show to show the IIHF, the the Ice Hockey Federation. Hey, even if we have a predominantly young Chinese roster, we're still going to be okay. Now that in turn has kind of pissed off some of these heritage players because they're like, "Well, what's going on? Are you are, are, are you cutting me?" Like so. So there's you know one player I know has already left. Uh, he was an assistant captain, Victor Barkley. He's he's gone back home already. Um, it sounds like there's going to be more in the coming days, um, but still not no confirmation of that. But uh, both assistant captains have uh, have been changed over the last uh, week or so, so that's uh, an indication. The IWH, sorry, I keep on messing that up. The IIHF, they they blew through deadline after deadline uh, until they got to this decision. Is is that what was taking so long? What was well, what was maybe it's a hockey thing because you remember earlier in the year we were like, is the NHL going to come? Are the players confirmed? And that was deadline after deadline after deadline. It was supposed to be May and then June and then, you know, definitely post uh, after Tokyo and then Tokyo came and went. We still didn't have a decision. And now, you know, the, there is there are noises coming out of North America yes. that, that some of the players are wavering, I suppose. Robin Lehner, who's a you know, Swedish goalie who, who's had well-documented mental health problems and he talks very publicly about that, says, look, I'm not going to put myself through this. It's going to be very restrictive. We're in the bubble. My doctors don't think it's good for me. I don't foresee, and I'm totally guessing here, but I don't foresee too many other players making the same decision like Lena. But you know, there there is definitely concern over what happens if you if you if you get a positive test in the bubble and then you're stuck in a Chinese hospital for frankly, you know, God knows how long. Yeah. So, I mean, as of now, they're coming. Yes. But it just seems like some of the players are getting a little spooked as as it comes closer and closer. I think so. I mean, a decision to pull out um, would have to come before January 10th from the NHL. And after that, they could still pull out, but okay. there would be financial consequences. So right. you would think it would happen before that. The re- only reason why they would pull out at this stage is not because the players are spooked, but because COVID forces too many NHL games to be cancelled. And this three-week break, basically, they can no longer accommodate the, the Olympic break. So as of now, we haven't had that. Mm-hmm. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Like We want to see the best of the best play here. We want all the NHL players to come. And the players still want to come, yeah. although there's concerns. I think they're a little bit spooked. But it has to be a big COVID outbreak amongst several teams to, to force this issue. And, and it would be really disappointing if that wasn't to happen. And then they'd still spin it somehow as kind of like a COVID pullout, because the because the the leagues never wanted to come, and and you know the, and the owners yeah. are not keen, but but the players because they made an agreement exactly. and they have to start. Yeah. So in, late last night, you you sent me this um, 
you know, I say late because it was like around 9 p.m. And that's you passed your bedtime. That's way past my bedtime, exactly. (laughs) Um, So you sent me this ESPN explainer uh, about about all these things. And and one thing caught my eye in this. It was uh, from Greg Wyshynski, who's a a hockey writer and a podcaster. He, He mentioned that athletes are encouraged but but not required to stay at the Olympic Village. And, and I had to look that up. I, I looked that up in the playbook. And and that's true. There is this option to stay at a quarantine hotel. Or sorry, rather, not a quarantine hotel. There's an option to stay at a, a contracted hotel. But we don't know what the hotels are. Um, so, so maybe the national associations have more info about that. But I just, I love the idea of these famous multimillionaire athletes just staying down the hall from say the biathletes you know <laughs> well that's that, i mean that that is the olympics right you see that with the dream team and people you know i thought they know. stayed at, at the hotel like, i mean for example in, when when they played in athens in 1992 they, i think they stayed at a at a luxury yacht they didn't like go to the uh maybe for some but i mean you know barcelona like, not i athens, remember sorry. um you know michael phelps for 2008 you know right. and, and part of being on the u.s team is is seeing all these other superstars right it's kind of fun I have heard that apparently there aren't enough beds in the Olympic Village, um, which is just staggering. Like, uh-huh. but it, well, they they they're using hotels in addition to the Olympic facilities. But it was like, how did it, was that a miscalculation? Mm. That was kind of kind of seems strange. I mean, these are the types of stories I'm sure that are going to come up yeah. in a couple of months. All right, let's move on to our next story. Earlier this week, the White House announced that they wouldn't send an official delegation to the Olympics, a diplomatic boycott. And it looks like some other countries are going to follow suit. There are a million ways to cover this. Mark, you've already talked about the difference between a diplomatic boycott and an athletic boycott. And um, if you want to hear more about that, you can tune into last week's uh, episode. My question for you now, though, is... How is this diplomatic boycott going to affect the athletes, the competition, the sports product that we're going to see on the field? Well, I think, you know, there's a couple of things I'd say here. It's mostly about the rhetoric. It's not a very strong stance, let's be honest. It's about the least that the U.S. could have done given the political temperature in Washington. And, and of course, we got China sort of saying, well, it's going to hit back. But, um, you know, on the one on the one hand, they're saying... This is meaningless. No one's, no one's, no one's going to pay attention to these people who won't show. And then on the other hand, they're saying, "Well, this is a serious, yeah. <laughs> serious, <Yeah. laughs> a serious attack." So it's yeah. like, which one is it? We are, you know, we're still in December. We're still, you know, several weeks away from the Olympics. So this is kind of like will be, you know, it's not breaking news. It's not really going to impact the Olympics. I think, you know, we've talked about this before, but because the, the games haven't started yet. This is, talk, yeah, this is what people are talking about. This is what people talk about. And so we knew it was kind of coming. It's yeah. it's no real surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who's been paying attention. And so, yeah, I don't think it's going to impact the games themselves. Will it impact the athletes? I mean, the, the athletes are already going to be in slightly difficult positions because they're going to get questions that, frankly, they don't really have much business answering. Like, like it's people kind of joining the dots and sort of saying to a to a to an athlete who is asking them to, to, to make sweeping geopolitical comments right. um, and, and judgments on on what, what countries should, should and shouldn't be doing. And, and, you know, what are they supposed to say? That if they say something, they're going to get, you know, criticized by some. If they don't say anything, they'll be criticized by others. Yeah. So they kind of need a little bit. I kind of feel bad for the athletes. Like they'll need a little bit of protection to, to some extent. Um, I don't imagine too many athletes are going to be speaking out openly on, on some of these issues but I could be wrong. The one thing I'd say is that this won't go down in Olympic history as a boycott, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's that, not 1980. No. It's not 1984. Yeah. Those, were, like, those were the things that really affected So, you know, look, Olympics. a decision's been made. We've yeah. been, they've been talking about a decision for, for, well, more than a year, it feels like. So let's move on, <laughs> on to the next thing, I guess. Moving on to the next thing is a great idea. Our final topic, the Chinese Super League is restarting its truncated season the league had been in a four-month hiatus, and a lot has happened during that time. Mark and I talked to two people who can help us understand how we got here. Here it is. The last year has not been the best of times for Chinese football. There's been an exodus of high-profile and highly-paid foreign players and coaches from the Chinese Super League. Several teams are in serious financial trouble, and one team, last year's champions, were suddenly dissolved in February. If that weren't enough, the national men's team's World Cup campaign has been a bust. They've only won once in this campaign, and they're in fifth place in their six-team group, and they probably aren't advancing. 
And just last week, the team's coach, Li Tie, left his position and was replaced by Li Xiaopeng, the manager of CSL side Wuhan FC. How did we get here? Is there a way to make sense of all of this? And is there a silver lining to all this turmoil? To help us answer these questions, we have two guests. Nikki Wang spent almost nine years with Deloitte as head of sports business in China, where she was an advisor to the Chinese Super League. She's with us here in Beijing. Tarek Panja is a global sports reporter for the New York Times. In October, he wrote a story in the Times that got our attention. It's called, Is China's Soccer Boom Going Bust? He's also the co-author of Football's Secret Trade, an expose on soccer's multi-billion dollar player trading industry. He's in London, England. Welcome to both of you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Nikki, let's, let's start with you. Let's just set the scene. Here, for people who don't closely follow um, the business of soccer in China. Back before, say, the 50-point plan, what was going on in the domestic professional soccer uh, in China? I think Chinese Super League has been one of the earliest professional sports league in China. So before, I think, let's say before 2015, um, it's kind of like a booming uh, period for Chinese professional football. But before that, I think uh, the Chinese Super League already established quite a long history in China. And football apparently has been one of the top popular sports. And some clubs actually, for example, like Beijing uh, and also Shandong Lunang, they actually have very good kind of foundation and fan base in the city. At that time, I think it's uh, it's kind of uh, in a way, like, you know, we have football, we have our professional league, but it's never been that the stage, you know, um, the business side and all the stakeholders, you know, the broader parties put lots of attention, interest and investments into football. I think uh, just started from 2015. And, you know, um, the football has been selected as one of the top sports for the whole country uh, where we try to improve and grow our sports industry very uh, uh, very actively so at that time and you know lots of business parties companies private companies um, started investing in football and uh, as you perhaps already noted, majority of them are from property, business, real estate. And I think for, for them at that time, it's still quite a golden time for them to have, you know, the um, quite a, a big amount of cash and um, capital to invest. So from that time, I think a huge investment into Chinese football, but, but we also see lots of investment into some international football clubs. So uh, I think um, there was a particular time window that lots of Chinese investors actually bought European, you know, in from Premier League or from uh, other European leagues, they try to also, you know, get involved with international club and uh, business. So just just to kind of fill out the timeline here, Haig, you'd mentioned the uh, the the fifty point plan. So that came out in March twenty fifteen, and that rapidly saw a huge influx of cash, and we saw some a broadcast deals towards the end of twenty fifteen mm-hmm. into twenty sixteen, and both in China with the players coming over, and then the purchasing of European soccer clubs by Chinese owners. Tarek, we we met a bunch of years ago in in China. When when did did Chinese soccer first get on your radar? It's an interesting. It, it's like a comet. It appeared from from nowhere in a way. That that also the quantum's we're talking about huge huge amounts of money from this place that for most of the time I've been covering the industry was it was a backwater. One of these the coming place, you know, the China market, whatever it was, it was being discussed as a Kind of nebulous thing, but now there was there were actors and there was there were deals being made, and there were, it seemed like almost on a weekly basis something enormous was happening from mid twenty fifteen, and it it just kept going. And from my point of view, a lot of um, actors in the West started emerging as well. These kind of middlemen, and I found them quite interesting as well because the thing with football, it's a very opaque um industry for something that is so popular worldwide for something that has such an enormous following the actual engine 
the the under the bonnet is 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 sort of covered in in, in like grease that you can't really look under, uh, get get under and now all these new figures started emerging both from china but also in the west so that was my first kind of interest from a reporting point of view who are these people yes we're seeing these things. and also how much of this is true because it was quite hard to believe the numbers we were talking about and seeing were were just astronomical and for me this seemed either this is fantastical and just a good story or something that is going to shake the entire industry is taking place right now it was one or the other and for, from as a journalist it was extremely compelling yeah i think in terms of the in terms of the numbers this has be, always been a particular sore point for me you know you see these ridiculous headlines and it, and it's a bit of a joke here that you know china fits into three categories of stories you've got bad china weird china and then big china and of course you know these stories were certainly in the in the big china bucket you know people talking about Carlos Tevez getting, I mean, the numbers that were reported, obviously he got a huge amount of money, but it wasn't anything like what was in the headlines. But of course, once it's out there, it gets repeated and and just exaggerated. And, and the biggest number always wins, right? <laughs> Whether yeah, or not absolutely. There's a degree of um, laziness often with these sorts of things. It's not necessarily in football. There is a sort of culture of reporting sometimes. Uh, you're in a hurry let's see what the last person wrote. And that becomes bona fide. No one can track down the source of the information. And here we are, we're off to the races. And weirdly, it's sort of, you know, fake it till you make it type of situation. That, that I noticed, I wrote a story about um, one of these middlemen. It just seemed to just pop up in every article. Like you'd read this guy who has contacts with every major firm in China, every major football team in China, and every major... Premier League football team. How is this? This guy sounds like someone I really want to talk to. I'd love to meet him. And it turned out to be, a, you know, a boy in his 20s who was an ex-painter and decorator. I, I, I just found it incredible. Maybe, you know, he's convinced that he does have all of these contacts. But doing some of the reporting, you, you, again, it was one of those, if, if, you, if you appear in so many places, you will end up getting the meetings. And I think that's what happened here. And I think people are so excited and confounded by China they're willing to talk to anyone thinking, God, this could be our way in. This could be the, the key that unlatches the door, even an ex-painter and decorator from Merseyside. <laughs> I, just, I just want to pick up on that for a minute. So this was, this was for those who are not familiar, um, a man by the name of Alexander Jarvis. Uh, and uh, Tarek's story on this is, is worth searching out um, if you didn't read it several years ago. And I think, you know, a lot of us over here, we all kind of had a Jarvis story. You know, I met him a bunch of times. He'd reached out. Uh, he was kind of reaching out to a lot of the journalists over here, but also some of the clubs. He definitely had some connections. Like he was pictured with some pretty famous people, both in the West and and here in China. But then when he kind of dug a little bit deeper, it was kind of, yeah, he was just passing by, got a quick selfie and then was sort of passed it off as, you know, we were discussing business deals. (laughs) And yeah, he was an interesting character. I mean, look, full of you know, you know what, but at the same time, definitely had something about him. I'd be really interested to see when and where he resurfaces because I'm sure he's going to come back at some point. I mean, he was, he, what is he now? Probably still in his 20s? Uh, I would have thought so. But it also, I think, symbolizes the relationship between between business, or certainly soccer business in the world, in the West, and, and, and China, because there is this kind of honeypot, this sense there is this, if only we can get there, and who's the rainmaker? It could be anyone. It could be this guy. Yeah. And, and, and from, from the Chinese point of view, I think also, they, it was all quite new for, for, for the Chinese football industry as well, because they've gone from naught to 60 in five seconds too. You know, President Xi has unleashed this demand. And there are all these actors who previously perhaps were not interested and weren't connected into the world of international football who quickly needed to on the other side. And that creates this opportunity and, and this confusion, quite frankly. Nick, I, Nikki, I see you not nodding your head here. Um, what's, yeah, what's your Jarvis I mean, story? As, as I said, like previously, the Chinese sports circle is relatively small and it's only like sports people, not many business people, not many connections with uh, outside of the you know, the circle or, you know, not saying outside of China. So that's why I think from, from like 
people like internationally, they wouldn't know like who should they talk to and what would be the channels to the center of Chinese sports、uh, network. And for the people inside, I think they're also like, you know, for the business people, they're not in sports or football business before. They wouldn't know like who they should talk to internationally. They want to collect more kind of insights about business, how to do business, sport, football business, how to you know connect with wider resources, opportunities from all sides. That's why I think at that particular time, just so many interests from inside and outside, and so many newcomers into. You know, rushing into Chinese football business, and that's why how eager people want to talk to anyone has any source, any connection. So I, I guess that's quite.、Um, I can see why like、uh, that happened before. Now we've mentioned the, you know, these huge sums of money that we're not quite sure were you know were real or not real. But just to give listeners a sense of what kind of numbers we're talking about. Yeah, I think we actually.、Um, I think that's kind of like a good positive progress、uh, about Chinese professional football league. So, you know,、um, when I was with Deloitte in China, we engaged with、uh, Chinese Super League, and so we actually helped them、uh, to reveal the performance not on pitch but also off pitch. You know, from commercial perspective. So we also、uh, helped the league published some,、uh, um, you know, the analysis result to the public, to the business community. To their major sponsors, so actually you can those numbers are kind of available to the public, but they never did that before. So、um, I think we just start from some like very successful year, for example, twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. I think the league generated about one hundred eighty million renminbi.、Uh, Um, no, sorry, or one point six billion RMB as a total revenue, including the broadcasting and commercial and sponsorships. Tarek, have you sort of seen any parallels like this elsewhere in global football? This this kind of huge boom and and you know now more recently a bust. Not not at this scale. That's what again made made this so interesting because if if it came to fruition. You would have seen the rise of a kind of counterpoint eventually to where all the money is in world football, which is Europe. If this if this got to where it was trying to get to, like a real competitive league with some of the best or a lot of the best international soccer players, this would have been an extremely interesting project. Because you know, I always sort of thought to myself. You know, if you're a kid in in、um, Caracas or or in、um, uh, Cordoba or somewhere in South America that is pumping out soccer players, apart from the biggest teams, the biggest name recognitions, Real Madrid, Liverpool, or Manchester United, by you, you probably don't have an affinity to you know West Bromwich Albion or Bochum or, or or some. Or Levante in Spain, you're going to follow. There's a reason they play in these places. It's because they're getting paid a lot of money. Otherwise, they'd like to stay in Argentina or Brazil. Probably, you know, there is a reason. Now, China appears as as a, a place that they can earn a really good living. These, these weren't, you know, low level, even mid level, often soccer players. These were top tier in in some instances、um, athletes in. Or approaching the peak of their career. Look, we we can name them if you like. You're talking about Oscar, who was at Chelsea. You're talking about Hulk, who who、um, a Brazilian striker、uh, from the national team, who who then goes to China. We we were talking about Belgian international from a Belgian team that everyone was talking about as being potential World Cup winner before the 2018 World Cup. This was. Serious caliber international talent going to China and, and playing there, so that that made it unheard of. If I'm honest, yes, you got players moving to the Middle East, but not not players in in this in the, in the sort of upward trajectory of their careers. Mark, you know, you 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 were you were you were living there, or you live there. You you, you must have been scratching your head as well and thinking, my God, all these guys are are, are playing here. Yeah,、that、I mean, there, there was. There was definitely a, a sense, you know, it, it was kind of a misguided narrative initially. It was like, you know, it's where people go to retire, 
And that wasn't the case. It was people in their prime still in their 20s. And I remember, I want to say, I think it was around 2017 when some of those players were moving over. And, you know, Conte and and Arsene Wenger were saying, basically, to, to, to your point about the counterpoint to Europe, you know, Europe needs to be worried about this. Like, all of global football needs to be needs to be concerned. I mean, I guess, like, just not, like, like dangerously concerned, but the fact that China is really on the map. It, how long did that feeling last? Or, or, or was it kind of like, yeah, yeah, fine, it, you know? Like, well, what did people think back then, as you recall? The sense was, there is a... In, in the transfer market, so we should go back a little bit to explain what this is. There's two windows, a summer a summer transfer window in, in, in the summer, in uh, European summer, and then a winter one in January. For a couple of years, so a few windows, whenever there was talk of a player trade, a big player trade, China was in the conversation. Whether that is agent talk to pump up the, 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 the potential transfer fee or, or the wages that a, a team could offer, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to factor that in as well. But, but in some cases, China was... A, a potential destination, and it was seen as normal by by a certain point that because people were going there. What we perhaps didn't realise, and what the players often didn't realise, is the quality of their teammates. Essentially, you are asking a world class soccer player to be in the same team uh, often as a bunch of players who would probably be, you know, two or three or maybe four rungs lower than them in the environment they were coming from. And I think that's part of the problem. To try and do everything so quickly, if you're bringing all this talent in, you did not have, or they still do not have, this pathway, this route of quality domestic talent. And that's something that I'm not sure China will ever be able to get right for, for a number of local reasons. But that's something that was quite obvious, that the these players that were... Were, were bought in. They were almost too good for the domestic competition. Nikki, as Tarek was saying, you know, what are the reasons you might want to bring a player in of those of that caliber is to improve your team? Another reason is their commercial appeal, right? Mm. To get more fans in the stands, to mm. to, to sell jerseys, maybe get you know a TV deal or maybe even an international TV deal. What what happened after these players came to China from a commercial point of view? Well, I think um, definitely I think um, it would create bigger impact with the Chinese fans, with the sponsors. Um, I think, however, I think um, for the for the owners of the club, I think uh, lots of thoughts to acquire better players or stronger players from overseas is still focus on the on pitch performance. Because I think, uh, you know, ranking top of the league still help the club to create, you know, better name, um, in China. And lots of business owners of clubs, they actually look at commercial benefit, uh, through the, you know, the, the club's reputation, uh, but not through the club's operation, you know, not the commercial revenue from club itself because they invested far more than the you know revenue they earn from the club and also i think because previously for chinese professional football club they only have very very small you know number of people doing commercial work um because the the owners never really focused you know, on the club to generate revenue or money uh, by themselves. And they want to use the club as a kind of a marketing uh, way for their own business. The commercial ability or the, you know, profitability of Chinese professional club is still relatively developing. They still um, have a huge gap compared to European clubs. Did you, have you ever been to a match at all in the CSL? Because I, yeah, I of course. you have. I'm, okay. I'm myself is a, a fan to Beijing Guan, as you know, a, a Beijinger. Oh, great. Uh, yeah. Oh. I remember when I was in high school, I, I cycled to, you know, the, the 
the the farthest place I cycle to is Xiandongtan Stadium when Beijing Guan has particular years play there because there is some construction work in, at Worker Stadium. So uh, yeah, it's uh, I think that's why I as I said I think in in China like for club like in Beijing or Shandong or you know um, uh, Tianjin they actually do have very good fan space history and the culture of football is very good. So we have generations by generations football fans. The reason I follow Guan because my family. Um, members follow Guan, and all my relatives, they are fans to be at to Guan Club. So it's kind of like our weekend activity. Yeah. Yeah. So, so just from a fan perspective, like just looking at all this sort of turmoil, how how does that like how do you, how do you sort of process that? Are you are you worried about about the future of the of the of the clubs? No, actually, if you talk to lots of people really in the circle or the network, they are the people really care about sport itself. I think for Chinese football, uh, we need to invest a lot in the uh, the mass participation, the grassroots, the academy, and those are kind of very long term investment. I think for particular investors, they're never a very attractive uh, area. But I think if you look at why at the moment um, is kind of not very kind of uh, hot topic about Chinese football because our national team perform not as good as we expected. And I think I still like national team performance is the very key part for the whole Chinese football. But at the moment, it's just because, you know, 10 years ago, that was kind of the the dark period for Chinese football. And um, it's kind of like a missing year for, you know, investment into the youth development into the academy. That's why we now experience, you know, the result from from the history. So, Nikki, you talk about the national team. And, you know, for those people listening for, from abroad who may not have been following the CSL closely, it's basically been on pause for months while... The national training uh, team has been training in the Middle East, and and it's basically been a waste of time because, the barring an absolute miracle, they're not going to qualify for the World Cup. The hope is that with an expanded World Cup in twenty twenty six, then China might have a chance. But Tarek, I wanted to ask, you know, what what is the view on Chinese football right now? You wrote a piece, um, I think, towards the start of October, talking about the bust of Chinese football, and and things have, have kind of got worse since then. We had, as Haig mentioned at the start, you know, the, the champions of last year going going bankrupt just four months later. Guangzhou uh, Evergrande, or now Guangzhou um, FC, looked to be in deep, deep trouble because of, you know, real estate issues with their parent companies. Clubs are going bust seemingly by the week. Players have left in their droves. All foreigners seem to have gone, and they're filing unpaid uh, salary suits with, with FIFA. You know, whether they'll see that money is another thing. Do people care about this? Is it is it on anyone's radar? Is there apathy? Is there interest? What's going on? Well, it's certainly on the radar of the people who haven't been paid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, 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 there's players uh, who are owed uh, millions of dollars um, who, who, who are likely not to see much of that. Certainly those who I think were playing for um, Jiangsu FC, formerly Jiangsu Suning, the club has gone bust. Uh, there's not much FIFA can, can do about that. There's probably a contract um, and you'll have to deal with the Chinese um, um, legal system when it comes to that commercial contract. And, you know, there isn't much hope there for, for that. And the thing is, football is a very fickle industry. China was the flavor of the month. It was where they were looking to for um, growth, looking for dollars. Now that looks in disarray. People aren't talking about China as, as the new El Dorado anymore. So now we're, we're talking about Saudi Arabia now. You know, everyone has a very short memory and everyone is in a hurry to make money. And that, that's the, 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 the football industry um, writ large, if I'm honest with you. What's, what's the, the hottest, what's the newest source of cash? I don't, the sad thing is I don't think anyone was really, you know, invested in China for China you know what I mean? It was it was a bit of a let's take. And I think it's from all sides as well. These real estate companies that invested in into into the Chinese CSL. And I say because most of them were real estate companies. There's a reason they did that. They, I'll, I'll give you a little anecdote if you like. And I, I, I as Mark um, said, I came to China during the boom because I wanted to see what it was all about because I hadn't seen anything like this. And I 
I, I took a visit to uh, to Guangzhou, Guangzhou. You'll help me pronounce that, I hope. Um, <laughs> thank you. And, uh, and um, I, I went there because I wanted to see a couple of things. I went to the Real Madrid-sponsored Hogwarts-style world's biggest football academy that they had with the local football team, Evergrande. And it was. It was enormous. I saw a bunch of children in sort of sportswear, having lessons, and then I went to the soccer field to watch training. And I hadn't ever seen anything. Immaculate fields, incredible facility. You you get a sense of why the national team is where it is as well and what you know how long the journey's going to be in a sense as well. Because I was there and I I'd seen participate as a child in football training and, and my work seen a lot of football over the years, academies and and, um, and and games. And one thing that struck me, I was there and I thought, God, it was silent. It was like being in a library. All, all I could hear was the Spanish coaches, you know, uh, in, in, in their um, mixed levels of English, trying to, trying to explain to these Chinese little boys what, what they're supposed to be doing. And it was all done in silence. I asked the coach, I said, why is it so quiet? And he said, well, it's a, it's a culture we're just trying to, you know, inculcate even like this team spirit. Because everything up until then, as far as the Spanish coach said, look, everyone is very kind of individual here. We're trying to build a team spirit. I said, well, how does that work? Well, and he said, well, I'll give you an example. When a player scores a goal, we had to teach them to, to uh, be supportive and celebrate together here. Because it's such a um, cultural difference where the individual is the focus often through school I need to do better than my teammate to get ahead or I need to better than my classmate getting that team spirit forging that I thought wow that that was very interesting maybe um, you know that was the anecdote I have maybe things have changed or maybe it was um, uh, rare but it didn't seem like that at the time the other the other really important thing that I noticed was I went to a company called Palm they're a real estate company and they own West Bromwich Albion, who at the time of my visit were a Premier League football team. They're now in the championship and they've been up and down between the top two divisions. So I, I went to see the, the guys. It was lovely people. They gave me the tour of their real estate company, told me about how they can build an entire city in something like three months. It blew my mind. And I was like, well, what has any of this got to do with football? And, and, and the guy, he said, look, this country has a plan. And in that plan, football is now an important point. It is embedded in the national plan. So that means we can get meetings with governments to say that we are aff affiliated with the national plan for football. And when we build our city... There's going to be football spaces here, and we have that expertise. I, well, I was like, well, how does that work? He said, well, we're the only owners at the time. They were the only Chinese owner of a Premier League football team. That's what they said they say to the, these governments. I said, well, what about West Brom? And so it's not really about West Brom. We don't say we own West Brom, really. We say we own a Premier League football team, which is the largest, richest, and most popular league in the world. And that opens doors to other business. So I found, I found that quite, quite interesting that, you know, you're in here. It's a, it's a cost of um, sales, if you like. Built, putting 100 million into a Premier League football team will hopefully lead to billions for your ancillary business. Your main, your main football is the ancillary business. And then you have an enormous real estate business that will grow on the back of that, they hope. Nikki, what's your reaction to that? I mean, did did you come across a number of people who were basically loosely affiliated with football, and and it, you know, was it frustrating, kind of having to having to frankly have meetings with these people who who were in it for all the wrong motivations? When you're trying to you know piece by piece at least you know put in a foundation for for something more longer term. Well, for a consulting firm, actually, that's good because many investors actually don't know about the football business and <laughs> okay, that's, all right. that's good timing for advisors right uh, but I, I I know um, your point like um, as, as I said at the very beginning I think uh, football business 
um, at early times uh, only with very small number of um, uh, circle people and many investors they got into football because they feel like oh this is kind of the central of Chinese sports industry development and they could be in a very good position um, from business perspective um, however as I said I think um, at the moment or even you know in the last kind of uh, four or five years I think for Chinese professional football themselves they still developing their ability to you know make themselves commercially uh, capable and they try to you know generate revenue through the club's operations through right. the club's uh, business like he's like like Tarek said, uh, through you know the uh, merchandising and salaries and you know the sponsorship from the club's business, um, so this is something I think it's more kind of important for for current uh, yeah. business owners to to look at. But I, I believe they are they are working on that. They are they are improving, uh, but just you know as um, slowly and it does take some time. Yeah, I want I want to build on that. We're in Beijing. About three kilometers to the west of us is the Worker Stadium, which is the which is being renovated right now. Mm. And I'm sure that when it's finished, it's going to be a world class stadium. Evergrande's hundred thousand seat stadium is being built right now in Guangzhou. And though that project may be, we're not quite sure. I think it, it looks like it may have been taken over by the government. So the state that Chinese football will be in when Beijing Guan begins to play in the stadium is is really different from the world of Chinese football before they plan the renovations. So a couple of questions from that. Where, where does the CSL go from here? Uh, what's the way out of this? And, and is this a blessing in disguise, everything that's happening right now? One point I, I do want to make is, because we do lots of benchmark analysis examples to study you know, how a European um, stadium or club to become very commercially success. And we, we try to learn and also try to compare to the, um, you know, the, the real situation in China. I think, um, in China, for example, for worker stadium example, the, it's perhaps the one of the only stadium could be at that prime location in a city like Beijing. I think no other um, CSL clubs stadium could be at that kind of uh, prime location. So it has to involve lots of kind of com- commercial thoughts by the you know the management people, like how can they make it broader than football itself? Because previously, Worker Stadium, as we know, as the Beijing people, it's not only about the stadium. Stadium is also lots of like you know hospitality business yeah. around that because it's very close to the uh, the, the next street of of the city. So uh, I I I under, understand you know from for the new stadium, they they also want to kind of build up like a, a very uh, kind of a landmark location in the city, um, including, you know, football as uh, I, I would say the, the priority for the site, but also lots of commercial and even, you know, some um, for the kids kind of development, you know, some trainings around the stadium, because that's also, I guess, the area for all the Chinese stadium they try to improve is because previously all stadium managed by the state, you know, by the council, by the district government, and they never be commercially run. So um, at the moment, I think it's a transition time that uh, some companies and even uh, either state-owned or private owned company they trying to operate the stadium as some commercial asset so they lots of kind of new ideas how can they make business by managing the stadium nikki i just have one final question for you um you know Tarek talked about the sort of the system that they're trying to institute but it feels very kind of forced it feels very you know fabricated with these you know huge soccer schools and kids who basically don't enjoy it but but you touched on earlier about, you know, there is this tradition of, you know, generations of, of supports in families and going back decades in China. And, you know, on one hand, you, you, you're kind of missing this this sort of traditional football culture that, that people would have perhaps in the West or in South America. But there is there is still passionate, you know, mm-hmm. despite what they see on the field, despite the, the state of the yeah. national team. Are you 
in despair right now or are you still optimistic for the hope for for the future of Chinese football I think my point can answer your your question I always think Chinese football fans are the most resilient fans <laughs> in the world you know no matter how our national team perform and we still have the most kind of uh, interest and attention from Chinese football fans um though they you know they could be very angry mad after you know a loss but they still engage with the game they still watch and they still be hopeful you know but i think it's um i think just because of that i think um now the industry need to really rethink how we reinvest our academy how we uh, grow our own kind of you know young players um i believe when i was with um the um the, uh, the sports business advisory i've seen lots of effort investment into that and that might be not that obvious to the you know to the public but i still believe it's happening right now and actually now perhaps it's better time to kind of review the effort to reveal where would be the best area we should invest so um yeah we we're still be hopeful and be optimistic <laughs> and uh, i i think you know as as ever beginning we mentioned about the international attention you know there's no country like china could be so serious about one sport and you know the all effort could put in one sport's development that's very i think rare and that should be an advantage for 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 us to if we really committed to a football yeah. Uh, development. Well, I love ending on optimistic notes, so I think that's a really good place to put it. Um, Tarek, any 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 other stories you're working on about China China football at all? Well, I think China football will have to take a back seat for for, for a while with the with the uh, Beijing Olympics um, coming up and all the various twists and turns on that journey, which uh, probably for another podcast. Are you coming over? I know you're in Tokyo uh, just a few months ago. Are you coming to Beijing? Yeah, the plan is that we, we come to Beijing, um, but there are no flights into into China at the moment. So the, the plan from the organizers is a, a closed loop, which will involve us flying on charter planes into, into the bubble. Uh, if any country can organize something as fiendishly complicated as this, I'm sure, I'm sure the Chinese will be able to do it. How much fun it will be is a, is a question is a different question, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I think they'll be able to pull it off. Well, if you do come, we definitely will not see you. Um, wave you, to us from the bubble. Yeah, yeah. yeah, wave to us from the bubble. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Tarek Panja is a reporter with the New York Times, and Nikki Wang was with Deloitte for over eight years. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, guys. That's it for this week. Thanks again to Nikki Wang and Tarek Panja. If you like this show. Check out some of the other great shows on the Seneca Network. Head over to subchina.com slash podcast. There's shows about technology, culture, business, lots of stuff to dig into. And while you're at it, follow our show, rate the show if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, and tell your friends about it. You can find me on twitter.com slash hygballion. That's H-A-I-G-B-A-L-I-A-N. Mark, where can people find you? Yeah, Twitter, Dryer China, D-R-E-Y-E-R China is probably the best on, on Twitter. And and hit us up, you know, send us questions. Uh, what do you want to, to what do you want us to talk about? Uh, who do you want us to interview? We have some uh, pretty exciting guests lined up. Won't reveal anything just yet, but uh, it's, uh, it's been a fun few weeks, and I think it's going to get even better. Absolutely. Well, I am about to head over to Chengli for a couple of days of skiing, nice. but we will see you next week. Bye.